Friends, uh, we're going to be in this passage today, continuing our series in the life of Jacob. And just a reminder of the context in which this passage is found. Remember, Jacob was running away because he had just deceived his father Isaac and he had stolen Esau's birthright. And in running away, he went to Laban, which is Rebekah's brother. And there, um, he saw what he thought was the love of his life, Rachel. And upon seeing Rachel, he was amazed and he went um, forward for her um, without even thinking about it, really. And then Laban, who was Rachel's dad again, took uh, advantage of that, saw Jacob's eagerness, his vulnerability, and in his idolatry of money, used uh, Leah and Rachel so that he would get 14 years of labor, right, free labor from Jacob, so that Jacob would work for his two daughters. So when Jacob was first working for those seven years, right, remember, he thought he was going to get Rachel as a wife, but instead Laban tricked him and gave him Leah instead. And he woke up the next morning shocked, and he said, why did you give me um, Leah instead of Rachel? And upon this happening, um, Laban decided again that you can have Rachel if you work another seven years. So this is exactly what happened after they got married. So Jacob is now married to Leah and Rachel. And what happened afterwards is um, really a fierce battle between Leah and Rachel. They are fighting with one another. They're envious of one another. And it's a tale of ironies. And you might just skim over this passage as if it's just a tale of women conceiving children and a, a kind of marriage and bearing children. But it's way more than that. And I hope we'll get to see it today. So there are three things I want to point out from this passage today. The first is um, the irony of Leah's and Rachel's idolatry. And remember, idolatry means making good things into ultimate things. Putting all of your hopes, all of your desires, all of your ultimate hopes and desires, all of that weight on good things that cannot bear it, right? Um, wives, children, families, careers, job, money, these are all good things and gifts of God, but they make terrible gods. And if you make them and not lift them to God, they'll always disappoint you. And so there's always an irony when we make good things as ultimate things, and there's always an irony when we idolize created things. So first I want to point out the irony of Rachel and Leah's idolatry. Second, I want to point out the irony of Christian idolatry. And third, I want to point out the irony of being saved through and by childbirth. So first, the irony of Leah's and Rachel's idolatry. Second, the irony of Christian idolatry. And third, the irony of getting saved through childbirth. But before we dive into the text, let us pray again. Father, as we come through this passage, we are reminded and confronted, Lord God, by our frailty, our weakness, our sinfulness, Lord God, that though you have um, shown yourself to be faithful toward us, though you have shown yourself to, Lord God, to be the one who is all-sufficient for us, the one who is our peace, the one who is our joy. We so often run to things that will not give us peace, that will not give us joy. So, Father, help us see your faithfulness in this text and help us see how through our messiness, our rebellion, our sinfulness, Lord God, you do not leave our sinfulness unto itself, but instead used it to bring, Lord God, your redemption through the Son, Jesus Christ. Help us savor that Savior today. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. First, friends, remember now the irony of Leah's and Rachel's idolatry. It's ironic because, friends, after this marriage, after they um, consummate these weddings, Lord God, we, we, we have this account of these, um, these two wives having children with one another. And it's an ironic idolatry because 
Each woman in this account, in their bearing of children, are what? They're seeking what the other woman has, what the other sister has, and they think that, that whatever the other person has will satisfy them, and they're not satisfied with what they have. So Leah wants Rachel's beauty and wants Jacob's affection for Rachel. She thinks that this is exactly what will satisfy her. She thinks that this is exactly what will fulfill her. And she started to use her children, her fertility, to ensure and secure and purchase Jacob's affection for her from Rachel. And Rachel, on the other hand, who has that beauty, who has Jacob's affection, ironically wants Leah's fertility in order to be fulfilled. She thinks if only I would have fertility, I too can become a woman that the other woman would envy. I too could have a fulfilled life. So Rachel has everything that Leah has, but she's not satisfied with what she has and wants everything that Leah has. And Leah, on the other hand, has fertility and therefore has everything that Rachel wants. But Leah is not satisfied with what she has and instead wants what Rachel has, which is Jacob's affection. And these two um, envious uh, attitudes and these two forms of idolatry comes at a head in this polygamous marriage with Jacob. Right, it's an ironic thing. And they end up using their children and manipulating them and using them in such a way where they, they think that their idols will be secured by the manipulation of their children. And there's already an irony there because Leah's and Rachel's first misery was what? Laban's idolatry of money. Laban already idolized money and used Leah and Rachel as forms of cattle so that he could secure more money, so that he could get free labor from Jacob. And instead of seeing that their very source of misery was Laban's idolatry that ended up using Leah and Rachel as cattle, they end up repeating their father's mistakes. They end up repeating Laban's sins and ends up using their very children to get, their idol, uh, their, 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 get, to get what they think would satisfy them. Jacob's affection or fertility and, and the envy of other women. It's ironic because the very sin that led to their misery is now repeated by them to their own children. And they're not at war with one another. It's, it's a polygamous marriage. And friends, just as a side note, right? A lot of people read this text. A lot of people read passages like this in the Bible. And they say, this is terribly patriarchal. This is outdated. You have a polygamous relationship here. You have fathers telling off their daughters. What do you have? I can't read or accept a biblical text from God that condones or advocates for forms of polygamous relations or polyamory, right? You can't accept this. But friends, notice that every time a polygamous relationship happens in Scripture, disaster awaits, misery awaits. Yes, the Bible is written in a context and in a culture in the ancient Near East where polygamous relationships and marriages and, and fathers selling of daughters was a norm, but the Bible doesn't talk about it to condone it. The Bible talks about it in a way which subverts it. Whereas in these ancient accounts, polygamy and all these things are expected. They're also celebrated. But the Bible, every time it recounts stories of polygamy, stories of these kinds of relationships, misery always awaits. The Bible doesn't include these stories to condone it. The Bible includes them to subvert it because we know how unsustainable it is. And the reason why polygamy as a whole in our culture had become dismantled and no longer desired is because of the influence of Scripture, of, of, of Christianity. And we see here the conflict that was resulted by it, by the two sisters that are married to one man and they're fighting with one another, they're wrestling with another, and that 
shouldn't be, and they end up repeating the very sins of their father, Laban. So let's take a look at first Leah's idolatry and the irony of it, right? Look at what Leah ends up doing. Verse 31. When the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. And Leah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Reuben, for she said, Because the Lord has looked upon my affliction, for now my husband will love me. So Leah has this first child, named him Reuben, and Reuben is named in accordance with her hope. Her hope was that her husband would not start to look at her, because she now has the ability to conceive for him a son. And fertility back then was a sign of blessedness, a sign that you would have future security, a sign that you are a woman to be envied. And so she was hoping that in conceiving children, Jacob would not start to look at her. And Reuben literally means, look, behold, a son. Look at me. In other words, she's named Reuben with the hope that now Jacob would look at her with affection that Jacob would now look at her in a way where she would now feel his affection, her, the longing of her husband, in other words, right? And she names her son exactly that. The Lord has looked upon my affliction. Now I hope that my husband will look at me. And this wasn't enough. Jacob did not look at her with affection. So in verse 33, it says, She conceived again and bore a son, and she said, Because the Lord has heard that I am hated, he has given me this son also. And she called his name Simeon. Simeon literally means, um, from, it comes from the verb, from the Hebrew verb, to see. So in the first son, um, sorry, to hear. In the first son, Reuben, right, she's hoping that her husband would start to look at her with affection. And her second son, Simeon, he, she names him in accordance with her hope that her, her husband, Jacob, would hear her, would listen to her. This wasn't enough. In verse 34, again she conceived and bore a son and said, Now this time my husband will be attached to me because I have borne him three sons. Therefore his name was called Levi. And Levi comes from the Hebrew word, guess what? The Hebrew word to be attached. She's hoping right now with Reuben, Jacob, look at me. With Simeon, Jacob, hear me. With Levi, Jacob, be attached to me. She names her sons in accordance to what she is hoping her husband would do. Desire me, be attached to me, listen to me, see me, come and look for me. She feels unwanted. And she starts to hope and she starts to want to keep having children so that her husband will become more and more attached to her. And notice again here, her idolatry, what, what, what does it do? Notice at how she uses the name of God in this passage. Verse 32, it says, The Lord has looked upon my affliction, for now my husband will love me. And then in verse 33, it says, Because the Lord has heard that I'm hated, she has given me the son also, again, hoping that her husband would hear her. And in verse 34, it says, Now this time my husband will be attached to me. Notice now, at, at the third son, God's name disappears entirely. In the first two kids, right, God's name was invoked, but God's name was invoked not as a matter of worship, not as a matter of thankfulness, not as a matter of praise, but instead in an instrumental way where God's name is invoked so that she thinks God is now helping her to, to, to secure Jacob's affection for her. If you idolize something, in other words, friends, if you idolize a creaturely object, if you idolize a finite thing and you're worshiping God at the same time, these two things are incompatible. And what ends up happening is you end up using God as a supporting actor 
to support your own agenda. And your remembrance of God becomes dependent upon whether or not you think he is now supporting and coming alongside you to help you in your agenda. See, idolatry makes us treat God as a supporting actor and us as the main actor, as if we are the center of the universe, the center of God's story, and God is helping us to get what we want. And by the time of the third child, notice what happens. God's name is completely forgotten. And this is another proof that Leah, here at this point, was not worshiping God for God's sake, but was in the first two children, especially at this third child, forgetting God altogether and saying, no, what I really want, God, is Jacob's affection. You are not enough. Now Jacob will be attached to me. Now Jacob will be attached to me. And only in the fourth son, only in the fourth son where she says, this is verse 35, she conceived again and bore a son and said, this time I will praise the Lord. And therefore she called his name Judah and she ceased bearing. But that's what she should have done three kids ago. For every children that she had, she was always have said, Lord, this is a gift. I'm not the main storyline. I'm not the main character. I'm not the one who's supposed to be setting up the agenda. Lord, you are. And if you're giving me these children, it's because you have given me, uh, given this to me as gifts. And I should praise you for it. I should be simply thanking you for it. And now in the fourth child, she realizes she can't keep manipulating her children. She can't keep using kids to purchase or secure Jacob's affection, who's fickle, who's uncertain, who would never satisfy her. She should instead dedicate these children from the very beginning to the Lord. And this is a moment of realization where she finally says, I'm going to give up manipulating my children, manipulating my fertility, manipulating God for my own ends, for my own purposes, and instead realize that all of my kids were given to me, granted to me, in order to praise God. And I'll raise them up in such a way where I'm not using them to get Jacob's affection. I will now instead see them as pointing myself back to the Lord God creator. I was not made, in other words, for Jacob's affection. I was made for God. And that is a momentary realization. That is a momentary realization. Because soon after, friends, we're going to see Leah ending up getting insecure again and ending up giving her servant, right, Zilpah, to Jacob because Rachel started having children. And now we see Rachel's idolatry. She ends up in verse 1 of chapter 30, um, seeing Leah's fertility and becoming envious of it, she got angry at Jacob. Look at what happened. Verse 1, chapter 30. When Rachel saw that she bore Jacob no children, she envied her sister. She coveted her. She coveted her children. And she said to Jacob, give me children or I shall die, which is hyperbolic. She's saying, if I don't have children, if I don't have kids, if I'm not as fertile as my sister Leah, I'm not, I'm not living a life worth living. My, I have no meaning in this life. I'd rather be dead. Give me children or I shall die. I have, my life is not worth living at all. This is not meaningful unless I have children. She's now placing all her weight all of her identity, all of the weight of ultimacy to her children, to her ability to have children. And she ends up becoming insecure as well. And what happens next is also ironic. It points up to another irony of idolatry. Jacob's anger, in verse 2, 
was kindled against Rachel, and he said, Am I in the place of God who has withheld from you the fruit of the womb? This is ironic. This is ironic because the only argument recorded in this text, the only argument recorded after the wedding, the only argument recorded after Jacob marries Leah and Rachel, right, is an argument between not Jacob and Leah, the one that he didn't want, but Jacob and Rachel. The very woman who he thinks would be the promised one, the one that he's been longing for, the one that the moment he would have her, all of his problems are fixed, the one that he idolized, the one that he set all his hopes on, the one that he made his ultimate purpose. He worked seven years for Rachel, and to him it was like nothing because of his love for her. And he gets over the honeymoon phase, and then he realizes real life sets in, and he gets angry at Rachel. Isn't that how every relationship works? <laughs> you get over the honeymoon phase, and then suddenly you realize, okay, she is not, or he is not, the person that I thought he was. I thought that he was perfect, because in the first three dates, he paid for everything, but at the fourth date, he said, let's split the bill. And then you get absolutely disappointed. And then you, you, you sort of realize the more you get to know this person that you've run out of all of his good features, all of the good fronts that he had to give you, you don't run out. And all you have now for the rest of your life, you end up getting married especially, right? Is finding out more and more the depths of this person's sin. And Rachel was not the ultimate hope that Jacob had hoped. Rachel was not his ultimate fulfillment. Rachel, in other words, was what? Imperfect. Jacob thought that he was disappointed that he would get Leah instead of Rachel. But no, he was also disappointed at Rachel. Isn't that how life works, friends? Isn't that what happens? Every time you get what you think was ultimate, every time you get what you think you've wanted, every time you get everything that you've hoped for, what you thought you had hoped for, isn't that what happens? Don't you get disillusioned really quickly the moment you get what you wanted? Think about that, whatever career you wanted to have. Think about whatever relationship you wanted to have. Think about whatever it is that you've set your, your mind on for so long, and then finally you get it, and then you get this sense where you found it, you got it, and then you realize, huh? Is that it? What? I'm still disappointed? Problems still come at me? Why, why don't I feel any more fulfilled? Why don't I feel any more, any, any better? Why don't I feel any different? You know, um... I remember when I was an undergrad and I was um, at Bible University and I was, I was looking at my professors as if they were kind of walking demigods, right? I was looking at them as if they were walking demigods. Why? Because they were publishing books, they were publishing amazing things, they were teaching such eloquent things, they were teaching such profound things in classes, and I was reading their books, I was eating it up, and I remember thinking to myself, man, one day, if and when I get my PhD, I'm going to feel exactly like that. I'm going to feel I had this romanticized vision of the academic life. I had this romanticized vision of pursuing intellectual pursuit for its own sake. I had this romanticized vision of the intellectual life where if only I could learn as much as they do, I could not finally feel that I know it all, that I know the solutions to my problems, that I know enough where I can live my life in stability, I can live my life in a way that is peaceful and harmonious, and I could coast. Finally, my life would be fulfilled. But I remember... A month ago, when I finally passed, 
after nine years of pursuing this thing, one of the first things I felt was, and I said um, to, to people around me was, I don't feel any different. I still feel like at any moment I could be caught as a fraud. I still fear that one day someone would, re- would respond in some, you know, um, random academic journal or, or worse, an obscure blog with the title, A Response to Sutanto's Shoddy Scholarship. I still, I, I still feel like at any point I, I, I'll be exposed. I'm not really the person that people think that I am. I'm not really as smart as people think that I am. This, I realized that I had put all this romantic hopes when I was younger on this academic thing. And I realized when I got there, it was almost as if it just disappeared. There's nothing there. Friends, if you make good things ultimate things, if you start to put your hope and put all your weight on good things that aren't meant to be gods, money, academia, your career, your relationships, these are great things, friends. Good things for you to enjoy. But they make terrible gods. Don't make them your god. They'll never satisfy. You will always live, if you keep living that way, Always, you'll always live for the next thing and the next thing and the next thing. You're going to be vulnerable to what Keller calls cosmic disillusionment. Cosmic disillusionment. Why? Because if you keep living for the finite, if you keep living for this world, this broken, finite world that cannot satisfy, you're exposing yourself and you're making yourself vulnerable to a kind of cosmic bait and switch. And in Keller's uh, sermon on Leah, um, he said, you know, I love Leah. I love what I love that she's she's pointing to Christ. I love all these things about her. I love her perseverance and everything like that. And he says, I mean no disrespect. But he said, you know, when Jacob woke up and found out that Leah wasn't Rachel, what, it's Leah? That's how you feel at every time you get the idol that you thought you wanted. You wake up one morning and you realize, what? That's Leah? That's not the Rachel that I thought I wanted. You will wake up ever in disappointment and feeling what Jacob had felt that morning, realizing that all of his hopes were dashed. So stop. Don't be vulnerable to this cosmic bait and switch. Don't be vulnerable to this disillusionment because it's going to come. It's going to come. And at that point, friends, when you're disappointed, when you think you got the very thing that you wanted and you realize it's not everything that is promised out to be, three things are going to happen. First, you're going to end up um, being disappointed at that object and then you realize, hmm, this object isn't what it promised out to be, so maybe what I need is a replacement of that object and you replace with another finite thing. So you say to yourself, hmm, my boyfriend or my husband or my kids or what of my career, it's not what it promised it out to be. So guess what? I'm going to replace it. I'm just going to get a new relationship. I'm just going to get a divorce. I'm just going to I'm just get more children. And then maybe these children won't mess up the first, the first one did. And you end up crushing the first one. And that's terrible. And that's the advice of Hollywood. I just fell out of love. I just needed a new relationship. The honeymoon feelings didn't last. Don't do that. That's unwise. You're going to end up blaming the object and you think that the the, the solution to that is a replacement of the object with something finite as well, something sinful and broken as well. 
So you're just replacing one finite broken thing with another finite broken thing. It won't satisfy you. Nothing will unless you place your hope on God. Or second, you start to say, maybe I'm the problem. And you start to fall into despair. So instead of saying, this thing or this career has disappointed me. What I need is a new career. No, you start to blame yourself and you start to say, maybe I'm the problem. Maybe, why am I not satisfied? I worked in a profit organization. Now I work for a, a non-profit organization. I'm still feeling the same sense of meaninglessness. I thought startups were supposed to give me more meaning than corporate jobs. And you start to say, maybe I'm the problem. Maybe I'm the problem. And then you quit again. And then you start to fall into despair. Don't do that. Or third, you start to blame reality. You start to blame the world. You start to become cynical, right? And then you start to say to yourself, huh, man, forget all careers. I don't need a job. Forget all marriages. I don't need traditional marriages. I'm just going to live my life and travel and go and meditate in the mountains of Tibet, right? You start to blame the opposite sex. Oh, I, I hate all men. I hate all women. No, everyone's the same. No, don't do that. In either one of these paths of blaming the object or blaming yourself or blaming so-called the system, whatever it is, you end up cycling yourself in, 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 a, in, a, in a spiral of despair. Don't do it. Friends, the reason why you feel these things, the reason why you will wake up the way Jacob does, not only disappointed that it was Leah, but disappointed at Rachel, is to realize you were not made for Rachel's. You were not made Leah's, you are not made for your children. You are not made for your parents. You are not made for your careers. No, all these things were made for God. And I know it's, 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 it's momentary when you have that Leah moment of when you wake up one morning and you realize this time today, I will praise God. But friends, remind yourself this time today, I will praise God. I will praise God. And don't get yourself caught up in this irony of coveting, of envy, of bickering. Look at what happens here. All right? Rachel ends up giving her, ser her, servant, her servant Bilhah to Jacob. And then Bilhah conceives two more children, Dan and Naphtali. Dan as if God has vindicated her. And Naphtali as if she had to wrestle with her sister to get God's favor. Naphtali means to wrestle. Dan means to vindicate, to judge. So because of her envy, she ends up fighting her sister, the one that she shared a family with all this time. When she had the very thing that Leah had. And Jacob at this point becomes what? He becomes kind of just a narrative device for children. He's kind of caught in the whims. He's no longer the active leader that he was called to be as a man. No, he becomes this passive um, narrative device in the midst of this family bickering, right? Passing him over. And then and the servants... They too become tools manipulated by the egos of these people. That's what we end up doing. And it's ironic. It's ironic. Leah, likewise, in verse 9, forgets all this and then ends up giving Zilpah as well for Jacob. And then has two more sons through Zilpah, the servant. Two sons named Gad, which means good fortune, and Asher, which means woman will finally envy her. It's ironic, friends, nine children, nine children, that's almost a decade. That's a decade worth 
of a family feud, a decade worth of manipulating their own children to get what they think will finally satisfy them. Nine. That's not a small number. There's a further irony to this, by the way. So second point, the irony of Christian idolatry. Here's the irony to this. Friends, what do I mean by Christian idolatry? Well, I mean by, what I mean by this is that Christian idolatry is, is, is the idolatry that Christians still fall into even when they know that they have God. Even when they, they know that Christ has secured for them eternal salvation, even that they know that the Father is no longer not pleased with them, that the Father is no longer wrathful against them because Christ has secured their salvation. Even when Christians know this and confess Christ as their peace, their righteousness, their Lord, they still fall into idolatry. In other words, they, they, they start to forget God and place ultimate things, uh, ultimate, ultimate hopes and dreams on good things instead of God himself. It's the idolatry that, that still indwells the Christian, indwelling sin, even when the Christian has become a confessor of Christ as Lord. Here's the irony of Christian idolatry. Let's go back again to Leah in verse 31 of chapter 29. When the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb, but Rachel was born. And Leah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Reuben. For she said, because the Lord has looked upon my affliction, for now her husband will love me. This is a little detail that, that we could easily miss. Leah does not call God, God. She does not call God, in other words, Elohim, which is, the, which is a title, which just means God, generic God. She calls God the Lord, which is an English translation of the Hebrew name of God, the personal name of God, the covenant name of God, Yahweh. In other words, she is addressing God in prayer, not by a title that is aloof, but rather by his personal name, Yahweh. In other words, she knows that God is her God. She knows that this God is the God of her forefathers. This God is the God of her family. This God is the God that has her in view. And she starts to name her kids, right? Reuben, to see, Simeon, to hear, Levi, to be attached, Judah, praise. She starts to name these children, the first three at least, right? In hope that Jacob would see. In hope that Simeon would hear, what would cause Jacob to hear. In a hope that Jacob, through Levi, would be attached, right? But who, at this very point, was already seeing her? Who, at this very point, was already hearing her? Who, at this very point, was already committed and attached to her? Who, at this very point, in other words, already gave her all of his favor? God. And the same with Rachel. Look at what it says here in verse 3. And verse 4, right? After she got her first kid, um, Dan, right? Look at verse 6. She says, Rachel said, God had judged me and has heard my voice and gave me a son. Therefore, she called his name Dan, who was already by her side listening to Rachel. God. So Leah is spending all this time being restless, hoping for Jacob's affection, and Rachel is spending all this time being envious, coveting her sister's fertility, and all the same, the irony is this. They thought that these things would fulfill them, fulfill her, and these, she, they thought that these things would be the signs of God's mercy and God's favor towards them. But all along, friends, they did not need these children to prove that God was already for them. 
God was already for them from the very beginning. The fact that, that, that Leah could call God's name out in prayer and say, Yahweh, Lord, listen to me. She already had everything that she could possibly ever imagine. And that's the irony. The irony is, friend, uh, friends, uh, uh, the irony of Christian idolatry is this. You think that God only loves you if God gives you certain particular things. You think that you'd finally be fulfilled if God would give you these things. But all along, you already had the very thing that you've always needed. All along, you've always had the very person that you've always desired. Who's your true spouse? Who's your true peace? Who's your true righteousness? Who's your true judge that will always vindicate you? Who is it that is always with you no matter what? Who is it that will always satisfy you? Who is it that will always be unchangeable? Who is it that will always be your God who will never disappoint? These mothers in Jacob and Laban, they're restless running after the wind when the very person that could be their true peace was there all along forgotten. And that's ironic. And that's absolutely tragic. And he's only remembered in, in moments and fleeting moments of that, where they finally realize, Lord, I don't need these things. Rather, these are good gifts to me. I will praise you today. Lord, I don't need the envy of women because I have your affection. And that should be the sign of the envy of other people. Not that I have children, not that I have this career, not that this, I have this, this, this credential, this achievement. No, that I have you. I have you. And Leah forgets it again and again and again. And Rachel forgets it again and again and again. And that's absolutely ironic. God was always there. And if we leave it at that, friends, a question should naturally arise, right? Um, as I was reading uh, and listening to that sermon by Keller on Leah, I was frustrated because he ended the text, he ended the sermon on verse 35 of um, chapter 29. As of Leah was kind of the main pointer to Christ in the whole story, and that Leah was uh, peculiarly pointing to Christ in a way that Jacob or Rachel or Laban did not. But you notice here, friends, that Leah, in that momentary moment of repentance and of reflection, she didn't last. She ends up forgetting. She falls into insecurity again, and she falls again and again, and she starts to end up you know, manipulating her servant for her, own for her own benefit, for her own purposes, for her own ego. You start to ask the question, Who's the moral? What's the moral here? Who's the hero of the stories? It's not Rachel. It's not Leah. Definitely not Jacob. Not Laban. And they start to put all these hopes on these children, right? And they start to name these children with these noble names. The Lord hears. The Lord listens. The Lord will be attached. The Lord will be praised. The Lord, uh, the Lord is vindicating me. The Lord will make me an object of affection, of envy. Right, Friends, if you're asking that question, if you're asking that question, who are we to emulate in the story? If you're asking this question, when you're reading your Old Testament, you're starting to realize, man, this is a group of messed up, broken sinners. 
who am I supposed to emulate? I thought this is about the Bible. All I'm getting in these texts, all I'm getting in these stories is what? Broken, messy, sinful people who never seem to learn, who end up forgetting God again and again, who remember God only for a day and then the next day fall into the same sins again and again and again. Who am I supposed to emulate? What am I supposed to learn? Who's my example here? If you're asking that question, friends, you're starting to get it. You're starting to get how Christianity is absolutely different from any other religion. You're starting to get why you come to church every morning. You're starting to get, in other words, why it is that you come to worship the Savior and you end up realizing that obeying Him is not a command that puts more of a burden on your back, but obeying Him is your duty and delight. Why? Because this God, friends, is a God that remains faithful even in the midst of your unfaithfulness. And when you read the Old Testament, these people remind you, and they should remind you, not of an example for you to emulate, but a reminder of yourself. How many times have you said to God, Lord, I will praise you today, and then the next day fall into the same sin? How many times have you said unto the Lord, Lord, today I will remember that you are my righteousness, you are my peace, and then the next day you forget. You start using people again. You start manipulating God as if you are the main character. How many times? You start to realize, friends, that Christianity, the Bible, isn't about trying to get you to become a better person, as if becoming better gets you saved. No. Christianity transforms you, makes you obedient by telling you, you friends are a sinner and God has loved you and God has been there for you and God will change you. Now go obey. Christianity is not a conditional religion where God says to you, only now will I love you if you do these things. Rather, because I have loved you, go and obey, go and do likewise. Because, friends, these women, let me go to my third point, the irony of salvation by childbirth, salvation through childbirth, is this. These women are putting, and Jacob and Laban are putting all their hopes into these kids, naming them with such noble names again. But if you keep reading, and maybe now you're thinking, okay, maybe these parents are messed up, yes, but these children, named as they are, surely, surely they'll get something right. No. Reuben, just to name two examples, right? Nine children here, as noted in these texts. Reuben ends up in an incestuous relationship with one of Jacob's concubines. Judah, the one dedicated unto the Lord, has a broken family, ends up marrying a Canaanite woman, ends up um, having sexual relationships with prostitutes, just nine chapters later. And these nine children ended up colluding against their younger brother, Joseph, sold him off to slavery unto Egypt. And you start to wonder, all these hopes upon all these children, none of them had lived up to their names. None of them. Reuben does not represent the seeing of God. Simeon doesn't represent that God hears. Levi doesn't represent the full commitment of God's attachments. And Judah definitely does not represent the praise of God. No. And they were used by their mothers to get what they think they wanted. Which, and, and it never works out. But friends, there's one child. Hundreds of years after this. One child. One child 
who isn't a product of human manipulation, one child not a product of the father of a human father, one child not a product of an insecure family, one child not a product to, 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 to manipulate other people, one child born not out of human will, not out of human flesh, as the Gospel of John says, but one child born out of the Father's will, not as an afterthought of insecurity, but as a forethought of God's commitment to you, commitment to us, and his name was Christ. All of these women were using their kids, manipulating them to get something else. But the irony of this is God would also use a child and if only this woman would realize that their hopes on these children were not to secure people's envy, were not to secure another man's affection, but rather their hope was supposed to be setting on these children a, a seed, right? A seed that would come that would redeem them from their sins. And that person would not come in Judah. That person would not come in Reuben. That person would not come in Gad or Asher. That person would come and his name is Yeshua. God saves. And only one child actually lives up to his name. And that's Jesus. Only one son can actually say, I am the representative of God and I am truly the one who is, who, who exists, the one who listens, the one who hears, the one who's attached to you. I am the one who has come to save and I have come to live by that name that God has given unto me. I am your Savior. If you're reading the Old Testament in such a way now, you're starting to realize none of these people has got it all together and all of these children continue to disappoint then you're starting to get it. Because how long, O oh Lord, why do the Old Testament saints cry that? Why is it promised in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15 and 16, that there will come a seed of the woman who will crush the serpent, who will, be the, 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 who will fulfill all of your longings, who is your peace? Who is he? Christ. Set your hope on this one. Set your hope on this son. Set your hope on his righteousness. He will be finally the one that will take care of you as a true son would. He's finally the one who would secure for you the Father's love. He's the one where you can now know for sure you don't need the approval of men, the envy of women, or the approval of your broken families. He is the one that will now secure your redemption and your peace forever. Rest. His righteousness is yours. God's wrath has been satisfied. His justice is now on you. And His grace, His love is now on you. You can now be with Him forever. This promise is yours. Stop trying to be a Christian and simply be a Christian. He's your Lord. He's your Savior. Let's pray. Father, what an amazing reminder that texts like these do not merely codify a series of names, a genealogy with no meaning, but Lord God, in these texts, we are reminded of our hope, the fulfillment of our hope, the true son, not born out of the sinfulness of man, but out of the purity of the father, the only one who can exceed all of our expectations, the only one in whom our salvation is secure. We pray these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.